Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, this morning to uh, John chapter 12 for our time of study in the Word this morning, John chapter 12. And for those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. And as we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to uh, to John 12, uh, verse 9. And my goal this morning is to cover verses 9 through 22. And the title of the message this morning is The Triumphant Welcome of Christ. The Triumphant Welcome of Christ into uh, Jerusalem. How many of you know who Dwayne The Rock Johnson is? Raise your hand, all right? If you don't know who he is, that's totally okay. You're not missing out. Uh, But he is a famous actor and film producer and is a retired professional uh, wrestler, just a huge guy. And uh, if you understand who he is, you could appreciate what I'm about to tell you. On Thursday of this past week, there was a church in Los Angeles uh, that received a phone call from Dwayne Johnson's wife informing them that she would be bringing by some donations for a pregnant woman that the church was housing and, and caring for. And when the items arrived, the pastor of this church went outside to receive the donation and to say thank you. And to his surprise, he sees Dwayne The Rock Johnson talking on the phone in the back seat of the vehicle that his wife Uh, had uh, driven to uh, the church. And Dwayne Johnson ended up getting out of the vehicle, and this pastor actually got to spend some time uh, with him. And soon thereafter, this pastor posted a picture of himself and Dwayne The Rock Johnson on Instagram. And his Instagram was a little bit over the top, I think. Uh, uh, In his Instagram post, this pastor said, and I quote, How in the world do I describe the magnitude of the moment when The Rock showed up to take care of one of the members, our mothers who lives on campus? I am still in awe of the spark of hope that he brings to the world, unquote. Well, when I read this pastor's effusive welcome of The Rock, I wondered how I would react if The Rock showed up here on the campus of Cornerstone. But I was also left wondering if I am as enthusiastic about welcoming Jesus into every area of my life. If I am as enthusiastic about welcoming Jesus into my life as this pastor was in welcoming Dwayne Johnson onto his campus. Our passage today is going to give us opportunity to ponder this question. For this morning, we come to the point in the Gospel of John where the rock shows up, the true rock shows up at Jerusalem on the first day of what will become the most important week in human history. 
the week that Jesus will die and be resurrected for our eternal salvation. And on this day that John records for us in John 12, Jesus is going to receive the enthusiastic welcome that he truly deserves, leaving us, I think, with much to ponder and consider about Jesus and about the quality of welcome that we give to Jesus in our own lives. A question for you to be asking this morning is, how welcome is Jesus into every aspect of my life? Now, to appreciate what happens in our text today, let me take just a few minutes to review. Uh, Going back to John chapter 11, when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick in Bethany, uh, in John chapter 11, verse 4, Jesus said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Long story short, Jesus goes to Bethany and raises Lazarus from the dead, and he stirs up a hornet's nest in the process. Among the crowd of people who witnessed this miracle, many of them believed in Jesus right then and there in that moment. But others who witnessed this miracle ran to the religious leaders to report to them what Jesus had done. And in response, the religious leaders convene a meeting of the Sanhedrin. And in that meeting, they express their fear that if Jesus keeps doing miracles like this, then everyone is going to believe in him as the Messiah and the Romans will come and destroy their place and their nation. In response to this hand-wringing of his colleagues in the Sanhedrin, the high priest Caiaphas speaks up and basically predicts that Jesus will die for the nation to protect the nation of Israel from the wrath of Rome. So the Sanhedrin, right then and there, makes a formal decision to kill Jesus And they send out word to everyone that if they know anything about Jesus' whereabouts, they are to report it to the Sanhedrin so that they can arrest Jesus. Well, being the most wanted man in Jerusalem, Jesus heads up to an obscure little town near the wilderness to spend some time with his disciples until the Passover arrives. And we saw at the end of chapter 11 how the Passover approaches and how pilgrims from around Israel are coming to Jerusalem and all of them are talking about Jesus and wondering if he would be daring enough to show up for this Passover feast, given the resolve of the Sanhedrin to have him arrested. Well, Jesus does show up. And the first stage of his appearance, as we saw last Sunday, is in nearby Bethany uh, for a dinner that is being held in his honor. And talk about an effusive welcome. During that dinner, Mary takes a $30,000 bottle of perfume and anoints Jesus' feet with that 
perfume and wipes his feet with her hair, which reveals how much Mary thinks of Jesus and how grateful she is to Jesus for what he has done for her and her family in raising Lazarus from the dead. Yes, we saw last Sunday that Judas speaks up and he criticizes Mary, but her extravagant expression of honor upon Jesus is a harbinger of the exuberant reception that many are going to be giving to Jesus over the next 24 hours. And Judas's criticism of Mary is in itself an omen of the resentment that Christ's enemies will feel as they see this reception taking place. As John now proceeds to tell us the story of the triumphant welcome of Christ into Jerusalem in our passage today. And the way we're going to break down our study of this text, as you can see in your notes, is we'll observe four developments in John's account of the triumphant welcome of Christ into Jerusalem. Four developments in John's account of the triumphant welcome of Christ into Jerusalem. And the first of these developments, let's word it this way, is a large crowd comes out to Bethany to see Jesus and Lazarus provoking the ire of the chief priest. A large crowd comes out to Bethany to see Jesus and Lazarus provoking the ire of the chief priest of Israel. Observe what happens in verse 9, where John says, The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he, Jesus, was there. And there is Bethany. And they came. In other words, they came out to Bethany, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So remember that Bethany is just two miles from the city of Jerusalem. Imagine walking out the east gate of Jerusalem and then walking about one mile up the gentle slope of the Mount of Olives until you reach the peak and then walking about another mile down the other side until you reach Bethany. That's about how far Bethany is from Jerusalem. So to start with, all these pilgrims are gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover. And when word spreads that Jesus is two miles away in Bethany, John tells us that a large crowd of these pilgrims make a beeline out of Jerusalem and begin heading out to Bethany. And John tells us that they did this not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Well, how do the religious leaders of Jerusalem respond to this development? Look at verses 10 and 11. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So now these chief priests do not just want to kill Jesus. They want to kill Lazarus, whom they would have to admit has done nothing wrong. All Lazarus did was get raised from the dead. 
by Jesus. And now these religious leaders want to kill him because him being alive is causing many people to believe in Jesus. Back in chapter 11, we saw how Caiaphas predicted that one man must die for the sake of the people to preserve the Jewish nation from the wrath of Rome. But here we see that that one is now being expanded to two people who must die, Jesus and now Lazarus. Why? As the commentator Edward Klink says, and I quote, everything Lazarus did, every breath, every conversation, every time he recounted being awoken in the dark, cold tomb was a thorn in the flesh of the Jewish authorities. They needed to silence his living testimony, unquote. And by the way, you can expect the same thing to happen to you, at least on some level. If you are saved and you have the life of Jesus inside of you, you can expect the world to hate you just as it hates Jesus, especially if on account of you, there are people who are being influenced to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. At some points of church history, the enemies of Christ have sought to Eliminate Christians by killing them. At other times, they have sought to eliminate Christians by pushing them out of the public square and out to the margins of society. At other times, they have sought to intimidate or embarrass Christians into silence. And at other times, they've sought to eliminate Christians by persuading them to give up their faith in Christ. However, the world can accomplish their goal, they will try to neutralize you. Because if you have been made alive by Jesus and you are a follower of Jesus, you are a subversive threat to the system of this world. And that will make you a target In the case of these religious leaders, their hearts are so callous that their intent is actually now to kill Lazarus. As it says in verse 11, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in him. Notice the language there, going away and were believing in him. Remember that this is the Passover week when hundreds of thousands of people are pouring into Jerusalem. This is the time of the year when these religious leaders are used to people flocking to them. This was supposed to be their moment to shine before the throng of pilgrims who are flocking to them. But now, in this moment, these religious leaders are observing these pilgrims in mass, walking away from them and going out to Bethany to see Jesus and Lazarus. And upon seeing Lazarus, they are believing in Jesus, whom these religious leaders despise, all of which sets us up for a hugely explosive second development in John's account. 
of the triumphant welcome of Christ into Jerusalem, which will be these religious leaders' worst nightmare. Number two, development number two, the large crowd hails Jesus as their king, welcoming him into Jerusalem. The large crowd hails Jesus as their king, welcoming him into Jerusalem. Observe in verse 12 what happens on the next day, which is Sunday. And we call this Palm Sunday on the religious calendar. Look what the text says in verse 12 and following. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Wow. This large crowd had come for the Passover feast, but now they're not even thinking about that in this moment. They're thinking about Jesus. And when they hear that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, they leave the temple and they go out the east gate of Jerusalem to welcome Jesus into the city. And they don't go empty-handed either. Matthew and Mark tell us that they cut branches from the trees of the field in their gospel accounts. And John is the gospel writer who informs us here in verse 13 that these branches were the branches of palm trees. As for what this crowd of people did with these palm branches, I half expect that they waved them in the air. But Matthew and Mark in their gospel accounts tell us that the people who had these palm branches were spreading them in the road. Nowadays, we lay out the red carpet for visiting dignitaries. What these people are doing is literally laying out the green carpet for Jesus. And Matthew and Mark tell us that the people who didn't have palm branches to do this were taking their cloaks off and laying their cloaks on the road to pave the path that Jesus would be traveling on as he descends from the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. Now, why would the people bring palm branches to an occasion like this? Well, keep in mind that the palm branch was a patriotic symbol to the Jews, reminding the Jews of when they greeted the victorious Simon Maccabees with palm branches when he entered Jerusalem victorious just a few centuries earlier. Palm branches on an occasion like this would be similar in a way to us bringing a United States flag to a parade or to come to an event wearing red, white, and blue. To say it another way, you would know from the presence of so many palm trees or palm branches on this occasion that Jewish nationalistic fervor is running very high. And the focal point of this passion is Jesus. As for what this crowd of people is saying as they welcome 
Jesus, John tells us in verse 13 that they were shouting the word Hosanna. The word Hosanna is actually two words in Hebrew. It's the word Hosea, which means salvation, followed by the particle na at the end, which means now or please. So what they're saying literally is salvation now or salvation please. In uttering this cry, the people are pleading with Jesus to bring them salvation. Only the problem is they're not asking for salvation from their own sins. They're asking for a salvation from the external oppression of the Romans and a salvation that would fulfill the prophecies of international glory for Israel. And these people are right now looking to Jesus as the one who can make all their dreams come true and who can make the promises of the Old Testament all come true and bring glory back to Israel. It's easy to miss this in the English text, but in saying Hosanna or Hosanna, in this moment, this crowd is quoting from Psalm 118, verse 25, where our English text says, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. The Hebrew of that text is simply Anna, Yahweh, Hosea, which means that the prayer that is addressed to Yahweh in Psalm 118.25 is being addressed to Jesus right now in this moment. What a staggering moment. And then in the very next verse of Psalm 118, which is verse 26, the psalm says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord And this is exactly what the people are exclaiming here in John 12, only they're even more specific, saying in verse 13 of our text this morning, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They are very explicitly acknowledging Jesus as their long-awaited king, the long-awaited Messiah, king of Israel. I should probably tell you that there are commentators who don't think too highly of the praise that is being given to Jesus here. And they speak of this praise as coming from a fickle crowd that right now only wants a political salvation. And in five days, this same crowd's going to be calling for Jesus' crucifixion. There's some truth to that observation. And yet we should not forget that there are many genuine believers in Jesus in this crowd. On top of that, I believe God is putting the praise of Jesus on the lips of these people, knowing that his son deserves this praise. In fact, write down the reference Luke 19 verses 39 and 40. Luke 19, 39 and 40 
In that passage, we learn that when the Pharisees, on this very occasion of the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, when the Pharisees heard the crowd saying these things to Jesus, they said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answers them saying, and I quote, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Such language from Jesus indicates that there is something God approved and God inspired that is happening here. Just as God caused Caiaphas unwittingly to prophesy truth in John 11, so it seems that God is right now causing a spirit of truth to come over this crowd of people to utter the praise that Jesus deserves to have spoken in his presence as he enters Jerusalem on this occasion. Though Jesus will certainly be rejected in the days ahead, God is seeing to it that in this moment, his son receives the proper welcome he deserves. As for what Jesus does on this occasion, observe what John tells us in verse 14 and 15. He says, Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Matthew's gospel indicates that there were two animals involved, the mother and the mother's colt that Jesus would have ridden upon. John only focuses on the young donkey that Jesus is sitting upon here. And he tells us that Jesus did this in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where Zechariah says, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. By the way, if you keep reading in that passage in Zechariah 9 and read into verse 10, you'll notice that in verse 10, God says regarding this king, he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this king being spoken about in Zechariah 9 is not just to be the king of Israel, but the king of all the nations of the earth with Jerusalem as his capital. We see here that Jesus is riding on a young donkey. We tend to think of a young donkey as a humble and lowly creature, but this is not how donkeys were viewed in this day, especially on a, an occasion like this. Princes and kings would ride on donkeys in the Old Testament, and we're seeing a handful of times that happening in the book of Judges that we're reading through this summer. We see it in Judges 5 and Judges 10 and in Judges 12. In ancient literature, beyond that, pagan deities such as Baal and Asherah are depicted as riding on donkeys, which is supposed to be seen 
by their worshipers as impressive. In 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 38, we observe Solomon riding on a donkey to the place where he was to be anointed the king of Israel. So it should not surprise us that in Zechariah 9, 9, the prophet informs the people of Israel that their long-awaited Messiah would come to them riding on a young donkey. And that's what Jesus is doing here. 550 years after this prophecy of Zechariah had been uttered. For Jesus to assume his seat on this donkey's colt would make a very loud statement to the people about his own self-awareness as the Messiah. The people would understand from this gesture that Jesus fully intends to be their long-awaited Messiah and promised King. And they would understand him to be accepting their praise as the King of Israel as he rides on this donkey down the slope of the Mount of Olives toward the east gate of Jerusalem. So this is a huge moment that the people of Israel had to be out of their minds with joy being a part of. Back in John chapter 6, verse 15, the people of Galilee tried to take Jesus by force and make him king. And what did Jesus do? He withdrew from them because his time hadn't come. Back in John chapter 7, verse 4, Jesus' brothers said to him, show yourself to the world. To which Jesus replied by saying in John 7, 6, my time is not yet come. Yet here in this moment, Jesus is finally presenting himself to Israel as her king, and doing so in a very public way. And the people seem to be picking up his message loud and clear. Imagine what a moment this had to have been for the people assembled on this occasion, lining the road that Jesus is traveling into Jerusalem on this donkey. Imagine what each person must have been thinking. You say, well, I wonder what the disciples of Jesus were thinking. Well, John helps us with that. Uh, he pauses to let us know that if you want to know what we were thinking, we were actually kind of clueless. In verse 16, he says, these things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they meaning the people had done these things to him. John is saying, I'd, I'd love to be able to tell you that we were more on the ball here, but we honestly didn't fully comprehend what was happening in this moment. But after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, we were able to more fully understand how what happened on this occasion was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. And we were also able to understand the response of the crowd, the almost inspired response of the crowd that had done these things to him in welcoming him 
and hailing him as the Messiah. Now, at this point of the narrative, a question that a reader of Matthew and Mark and Luke's account of this incident might be asking is, what what would cause so many people to gather for this occasion? And what caused their fervor to reach fever pitch like it is in this moment? John is actually, unlike the other gospel writers, given a very good answer to this question so far by explaining to us about how Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. That's the critical element causing many people to believe in him. And tied to that, John actually wants us to know an additional feature of this, which brings us to the third development in John's account of the triumphant welcome of Christ into Jerusalem. Number three, let's word it this way. Witnesses of Lazarus' resurrection persuade people to flock to Jesus Provoking dismay from the Pharisees. Witnesses of Lazarus' resurrection are persuading people to flock to Jesus on this occasion, provoking dismay from the Pharisees. Observe what John says in verse 17. He says, So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continue to testify about him. John wants us to know that part of what is feeding this gathering and the enthusiasm of the people on this occasion is that the very people who witnessed the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus were literally continuously testifying about him. In other words, they were acting as evangelists going around and spreading the news about how Jesus raised a man from the dead who had been dead for four days and telling them that this miracle indicates that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And it seems that their evangelistic efforts paid off. For John says in verse 18, for this reason also the people went and met him. Because they heard that he had performed this sign. So these witnesses of that miracle are in Jerusalem and at the temple. And they're spreading the word about what Jesus had done for Lazarus. And people are hearing this and then making their way out when they hear the news that Jesus is actually on his way into Jerusalem right now. In the minds of the people that are hearing this testimony... Their thinking is, if Jesus could raise a man who had been dead for four days, then certain things are inevitably true. Number one, Jesus is clearly the Messiah. Number two, if Jesus can take on death itself and prevail, then there is no enemy that we ever have to worry about, including the Romans. And number three, if Jesus is the Messiah, then we will side with him rather than with the religious leaders who want to arrest him. 
And so they're coming out to give Jesus a Messiah's welcome. Back in John chapter 7, verse 13, we were told that the people of Jerusalem were afraid to speak openly about Jesus for fear of the Jewish leaders. And so, yeah, they talked about him, but in hushed tones. But now these people are as open as they could be in their enthusiastic welcome of Jesus. But let's think for just a moment, not about them, but about the witnesses of the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus who are going around now and telling people about this miracle. It seems that all it took for them was to see Jesus raising a man from the dead. And now they're going around telling everyone about Jesus and inviting people to join them and welcoming him as he comes into Jerusalem. So let me ask you this morning, if you witnessed with your own eyes, Jesus raising someone from the dead, would you be a bold evangelist for him? Would that be enough to make you want to tell your coworkers and your family members about Jesus? Would it? I suspect it would. But the truth is that we have witnessed something far greater than what these people had witnessed in seeing Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. We know from history that Jesus himself died upon a cross. And then on the third day that he himself rose from the dead and then ascended to heaven. And ever since then, Jesus has been raising spiritually dead people to life and changing their lives, which means that where we are in history right now, looking back, we have infinitely more reason to testify about Jesus than these eyewitnesses of Jesus raising Lazarus' head. And thankfully, many of you do exactly that, inviting others to join you in welcoming Jesus into their life just as these witnesses are inviting others to join them in welcoming Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem on this occasion. Looking back at our text today, we see the excitement of the people reaching fever pitch in the verses that we've looked at. And this excitement produces an equally passionate response in the opposite direction from the Pharisees who despised Jesus these Pharisees didn't realize it, but the microphones were on and caught what they were saying to one another. And the Apostle John records this hot mic moment for us in verse 19. Observe what happens in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. It's interesting that none of these Pharisees is accepting any blame upon himself. But instead, they look at their colleagues and accuse their colleagues, pointing the finger at their colleagues and say, you are not doing any good. 
you were supposed to stop this from happening. And now look, the whole world is going after him and it's your fault is essentially what they're saying. As they bicker in frustration with one another. The dismay of these Pharisees reminds us of the fact that in every generation, there are people who view people believing in Jesus and going after him as a bad thing. There are people in our world today who view believing in Jesus as a bad thing. So they view efforts to stop people from believing in Jesus as a good effort. The atheist Sam Harris is one example of this, writing a book entitled Letter to a Christian Nation for the sole purpose of persuading Christians to do themselves and do society a favor and stop believing in Jesus Christ. The Spirit has been at work in our world for a long time, even in our culture here in the West. Writing in the early 1800s, the English poet Percy Shelley said, and I quote, the genius of human happiness must tear every leaf from the accursed book of God so that man can then read the inscription on his heart. This is the spirit that is at work in our age, tearing the Bible to pieces so that people can then be free to listen to their hearts and follow whatever it is that their heart tells them to do, not follow what God tells them to do. That's the way these Pharisees felt about Jesus, only they're now realizing that their efforts to stop people from going after Jesus have all been fruitless. How frustrated they must be witnessing this scene on this occasion. Back in the 1700s, the French writer Voltaire made it his life's work to eliminate Christianity from the face of the earth. And five years before his death, he wrote in one of his essays, and I quote, we are living in the twilight of Christianity, unquote. He was just sure that Christianity was on its way out, partly through the genius of his own influence. Three years later, he was 81 years old, and he knew that he did not have too much longer to live he wrote a letter to Frederick the Great, the king of Prussia, and said these words, quote, Christianity is the most ridiculous, the most absurd and bloody religion that has ever infected the world. My one regret in dying is that I cannot aid you in this noble enterprise of ridding the world of this infamous superstition. Unquote. Voltaire hated the fact that after all his efforts, to the contrary, Christianity was going to outlive him. And here we are today, uh, what, 
uh, 300 years later, and the religion of Jesus Christ continues to march forward while Voltaire's body lies rotting in his grave. For all his efforts against Christ, he did not prevail. Christ is still saving his sheep, and those whom he is calling from around the world are still following after him and believing in him and singing his praises. And despite the efforts of the enemies of Christ in our own day today, Christ promises that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. Given the hatred of these Pharisees for Jesus, surely you can imagine their frustration as they look at the throng of people around Jesus, welcoming him as their Messiah. And these Pharisees say the world has gone after him. Question we might ask is why would they use the word world and say that the world has gone after him? Well, what John says next might give us some idea why, which brings us to the fourth development in John's account of the triumphant welcome of Christ into Jerusalem. Let's word it this way even some Greeks are requesting to see Jesus. Even some Greeks are requesting to see Jesus. Yes, the Jews were flocking to Jesus, but observe what John says in verses 20 to 22. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. As for where these Greeks are from, it's possible that they are from Greece itself, but it's also possible that they are from one of the Greek cities of the Decapolis on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, not too far actually from where Philip himself is from. What we can know for sure is that according to verse 20, these Greeks were among those who were going up to worship at the feast. So these are God-fearing Gentiles who are drawn to the Jewish faith and they highly value the Jewish scriptures. That's why they're here to worship on this week of Passover. And let's not forget that because they are non-Jews, they're not allowed to go any farther than the court of the Gentiles. They can't enter the court of Israel and worship God with the Israelite men as they worship God. But in this moment, these Greeks are not pining to enter the court of Israel. All they care about is that they might be able to see Jesus. Wherever Jesus is, that's where these Greeks want to be so that they can lay their eyes on him and have a conversation with him. Yet it seems that these Greeks are too timid to approach Jesus personally. John says that they came to Philip and said, we wish to see Jesus. Philip was one of Jesus' disciples. Commentators suggest that they might be approaching Philip because Philip had a Greek name, which might have made them more comfortable approaching him. 
Either way, it seems that Philip isn't sure exactly what to do with these men and their requests. So he comes and tells Andrew. And then Andrew and Philip both together come and tell Jesus about these Greeks who wish to see him. We actually should be impressed that Philip and Andrew come to Jesus with this request at all on behalf of these Gentiles, rather than blowing off these Gentiles and assuming that Jesus wouldn't have time for them or want to spend time with them. Both Andrew and Philip coming to Jesus for this purpose speaks volumes to us about how they have come to understand Jesus' heart for the world. And I love the teamwork here for what Philip and Andrew are doing reminds us of what often happens to us today. People might want to know more about Jesus and so they come to you. Maybe you're not always sure how to handle what they are asking of you. So you go to another brother or sister and then that other brother or sister helps you perhaps and even joins you in going to Jesus and interceding with Jesus on behalf of those whom you are engaging with. And that's what's happening here. As Philip and Andrew come to Jesus to tell him about these Greeks who wish to see Jesus. What will come of the request of these Greeks and of Philip and Andrew as they bring this request to Jesus? That's a great question. And come back two Sundays from today and find out what happens? We've covered a lot of ground this morning, but what an amazing moment this is. The masses are thronging to Jesus and hailing him as the Messiah, while the religious leaders are adding to their list of people they're going to have to kill to put a stop to this madness. As for the Pharisees, they're distraught over what they are witnessing. They've done their best to keep something like this from happening. But now they realize that for all of their efforts, they have accomplished nothing. Now, granted, you and I know what happens in the week ahead, right? These religious leaders are on their heels right now, but we know that they're going to regain their footing and they're going to figure out how to put an end to Jesus. In five days, they're going to actually end up getting Jesus handed over to the Romans and crucified and killed upon a cross. And then they will think, yes, we finally succeeded. And they will go to bed that night thinking that they have finally prevailed in putting a stop to this silly Jesus movement. But on Sunday morning, Jesus is going to rise from the dead. And 50 days later, he will pour out his spirit and the church of Jesus Christ will be born and 3,000 souls will be saved. And then many thousands more will be saved in the months and years and decades and centuries that followed. And no matter what these religious leaders in Jerusalem try to do, they're not going to be able to stop the growth of the religion of Jesus Christ. Even when they persecute believers in the book of Acts, their persecution will only scatter the saints to other places where they will simply preach the good news about Jesus in new locations. And here we are 
2,000 years later, the triumphal procession of Christ still continues where every day around the world, Jesus is still saving people of every tribe and tongue and nation. And a few hundred of those people are seated in this room many, many miles away from where all of this happened in our passage today. These Pharisees were wringing their hands about what they saw outside of Jerusalem on the day of Christ's triumphal entry. Little do these Pharisees realize that what they're witnessing is merely a foreshock of many greater earthquakes to come. And one day, the greatest earthquake of all, the heavens will open and Jesus will descend from heaven on a white horse and he will wreak havoc upon his enemies and he will establish his kingdom on the earth. That moment will be the ultimate triumphal entry of Christ. And on that day, he will have the praise that he is due from all over the world. And all who opposed him will then know that they were on the wrong side of history. They will be left having nothing to show for all of their efforts against Christ. And they will say, we have accomplished nothing. So what will you do with Jesus? Will you reject him as these Pharisees and religious leaders do, or will you welcome him into your life as your Messiah? Are you willing to allow him to come to you? And as he comes to you, for you to ask him to save you from your sins? Or do you just want a savior who will save you from all those things and those people and problems outside of yourself? that you blame for all of your problems. In our culture today, most people would say that, yeah, we need salvation. Probably anyone you talk to would say, yes, I need salvation. We need salvation. The only problem is that everyone is thinking that they need to be saved from things outside of themselves, right? Some people think that we need to be saved from the liberals, and others think that we need to be saved from the conservatives. Some think we need to be saved from the Democrats. And others are thinking we got to be saved from the Republicans. Some people think we need to be saved from the Bidens. And others think we need to be saved from Donald Trump. The list is endless. All of these things lie outside of ourselves. And the business of politics is the business of promising that if you elect me, I will rescue you from these evils outside of you. Meanwhile, Christ cuts through the heated rhetoric of our day and comes to each of us to save us from us. To save us from our own Sins through his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. 
Yes, Jesus comes to drain the swamp. And right now, the swamp he's most interested in draining is the swamp that is in you. Will you cry out to him for salvation and ask him to save you? If you have never invited Jesus into your life to save you from your own sins, call out to him today and say, Hosea, nah, salvation, please save me from my sins. If you do that, I know that he would be pleased to save you this morning. And then just in closing, if you are a Christian, this is something that the Lord's been dealing with me about. Let me encourage you to be deliberate about welcoming Jesus into your life at every opportunity. At the beginning of your day, as soon as you wake up, before your feet hit the floor, welcome Jesus into your day and ask him to be your savior that day. Welcome his word into your day. Welcome his truth into your heart. Welcome his agenda and his presence into your life throughout each day. And don't just look for the big opportunities to do this. Look for the small ways. Like when you're standing in line at the checkout. When you have just a minute, perhaps, to pray or to meditate on his truth, or to speak briefly to another person. There are thousands of such moments we have probably every day that are micro moments to welcome Jesus into our lives. In his book, Imagining the Kingdom, James Smith says, what appear to be micro practices have macro effects. What appear to be micro habits are in fact disciplinary formations that began to reconfigure our relation to the wider world, including to Christ Jesus himself. So don't underestimate how those small moments in your day can add up to a whole lot of good and the formation of your experience of Jesus. Ask yourself, what receives the greatest welcome in my life? Is it sports? Is it the news? Is it politics? Is it entertainment? Is it some sin? Or is it Christ? In your moments of temptation, welcome Jesus into those moments and say to him, save me, please. In your moments of anxiety, in your moments of sadness, in your moments of trial, in your moments of joy, and in the daily routine of your family life, and in, even in your moments of free time and boredom, give Jesus the proper welcome that he deserves into your life. And realize how amazing it is that you can even have him in your life and all that Jesus did to be able to come to you in those moments and be in your life. Be as excited about welcoming Jesus into every area of your life 
as that Los Angeles pastor was to have Dwayne Johnson show up on his church campus. Because Jesus is worthy, isn't he? Let's pray together. Lord, it's easy for us to proclaim your worthiness, to sing that you are worthy, to imagine the future day when we with the saints of heaven are proclaiming how worthy the Lamb is of all glory and honor and power and praise. But the real question is, do we deem you worthy to inhabit our now? Do we deem you worthy to welcome you into the moments of our life, both large and small? To welcome your word and your presence and your truth into the totality of our lives. It's easy to look at this crowd of people and observe what will be revealed later as deep flaws in their welcome of you, but help us, Lord, to look at ourselves in the mirror and observe what's lacking in our welcome of you, even as believers. And I pray that if there's any here this morning that have never yet welcomed you into their life, that they would do that today and allow you to come to them in salvation and mercy and welcome you. And help all of us as your people to go forth this week and to represent you, Lord Jesus, and to tell others of who you are and what you have done and invite them to join us in welcoming you into their lives in a saving way. For you, Jesus, are worthy. We say all of these things to you and ask these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,